If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Hi, Brad here. Lori is off being awesome, so you just have me today. In my other life, I have a music podcast called Music at Three Pines, the podcast, where I interview musicians about songwriting and the creative process. You can look it up. But folk music has always been inherently political, so in the middle of interviewing uh, singer-songwriter Peter Mulvey about music, we had a great political conversation. If you have never seen Peter live, you should check him out. He's a true Renaissance man. Well-versed not only in guitar, but can also speak intelligently about astrophysics and history. I have run into him over the years and had several such conversations. He is also a social activist and has written songs about Michael Brown and another about the Confederate flag and a rather humorous song about guns. In this conversation, we have a pretty wide-ranging discussion about the nature of our politics, the current campaign, and end with a discussion about folk music and political activism. You'll hear some parts of songs here, and if you are interested, you can find more info on how to follow Peter and his music in the podcast details. We start talking about his most recent and last live show of the year. You know, it was, I think, only the fourth or fifth show that I played where I could see the people mm. since March, mm -hmm. and I knew it was the last one. You know, uh, this is it. I don't have anything booked for the rest of the year in person, and and... I mean, it was more emotional than that because, you know, the election is three weeks from tomorrow. I know it is going to get ugly. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, my, my wife and I have been talking about this and, you know, every time one of us says, you know, people are going to die. The other one says, no, people have already died. Mm -hmm. More people yeah. are going to die. Yeah. This is going to get, brutal and so i'm like playing for this audience and and mm. i don't know it just felt like one of those epic m moments where you you feel so small like i'm you know mm. just a backyard full of uh you know mi middle class human beings when i've done the live streams i've partnered with venues because the venues they have no way to pay rent you know like a, if a venue says hey donate here people don't really even think yeah. of that all that often yeah. and then i've also partnered with nonprofits because you know partly because obviously you know if i'm i'm drinking oat milk in my coffee like i'm fine i'm fine you know i have a deep bench i've got my parents they're alive they have some savings i have some savings i got a partner i got a community so you know we we try to like partner with a food bank uh or we'll partner with you know some local nonprofit a shelter and I just realized last night, like, here's another reason to partner with the food bank. There are people that do not have the financial cushion that I do, and they're already in the streets. Yeah. You know, and yeah. one, we, I feel like we're going to, we're going to need to join the people in the streets just to say that we decide this, not, mm. not, the, not the people we vote for. The people we vote for do not decide this. 
we decide this. If they can get in there, if, if someone can actually like risk their, their, you know, uh, a minimum wage job to get in the streets and take a couple of days off, I owe it to them to get yeah. on their side and get in the streets. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the premise of the estate sale, by the way, is that this is my friend, Lori, she came up with this is, is essentially the, the betrayal of American institutions or the failure of American institutions. So the fourth estate is the one she gravitated to, of course. Of course. Um, yeah. And so I thought that's been, you know, so we've, we've talked to scientists. We had a, I did a podcast with a colleague from, or actually my former neighbor from Oklahoma on essentially on the coronavirus and sort of explaining evolutionary biology. And, you know, it was, it was really cool uh, to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then we've talked to some religious leaders uh, to try to, you know, get a sense of, cause clearly the church is one of those institutions that's really, really let us down. So I'm kind of curious your take on, you know, it, it feels like that this pandemic has revealed the, the, the fragility of our democracy, you know, uh, and actually Trump has revealed that fragility that we there were things that we thought worked because people just did them. And that was yeah. probably false, you know, yeah. but but it's sort of been revealed. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on on that from that uh, from that institutional kind of protection idea. Yeah, I mean, to give you a perfect example, the Senate and the House and the executive branch let the uh, let the, the the pandemic relief fund just they let it go. Uh, you know, they 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 it all of that stopped. I forget when it stopped, June or July, but you know, they let it go. And months and months. Yeah. I mean, I think they passed it in March. And and so they had March, April, May, June, July, August, September to come up with something, October to come up with something. And no, I guess we can't do it. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and they're like, well, you know what we can do? And it's only going to take us 17 days. So, you know, the, the past several years have radicalized me and... I'm just continuing in that direction. Like things that I would not have thought I'd agree with, I utterly agree with now. Like you take, for example, the felons who have served their time in Florida, uh, get, you know, their, their franchise, their right to vote is returned to them. I am completely be, I'm completely beyond that. Felons should vote. They should vote while they're in prison. Mm. They should be allowed to. Mm. Anyone should be allowed to vote. And the reason is, uh, Norman Mailer put this really well. He said that the terrifying premise of democracy is that we're going to let the collective, how did he put it? I mean, it's this amazing laundry list. Let the collective loves and hatreds and aspirations and foul perversions and cupidities and desperations and ambitions of all men and women have their day and we will all be better off because there is more good than bad in the sum of us and our workings. Mm. That's, that's it. Like you don't, if you trust the people, then you trust the people. If the Mm. people are good, then you Mm. trust the people. You don't say, Oh, these are the good people and they vote. Mm. And those are the bad people and they don't vote because wait a minute says who, and we have a long history of that says who being incredibly fraught. So, um, yeah, and, and you, and 
<laughs> God, this has seeped into my writing, but, uh, you know, obviously I've started listening to quite a few people. There's a podcast called Pod Save the People, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, this quartet of brilliant young people, um, DeRay McKesson, Brittany Packnett, Clint Smith, and Samson Youngway. And they pointed something out to me. Like, I only vaguely knew what the three-fifths compromise was, mm-hmm. which was that uh, Black people enslaved people three-fifths of their body would be counted in the census so now you can't vote but your body is being used to swell the proportional representation of the people who are your captors right well here's a fact let's say a kid in chicago and i just put this in a song the other day let's say a kid in chicago gets busted for smoking weed it's a fact that if he's a black kid he's likelier to go to prison Mm-hmm. Federal prisons are not located in the big cities. They're not in Cook County. They're down in Greenville County or out in Jacksonville County. In other words, the kid will go to white rural Illinois mm-hmm. where he will be counted in the census. And this is a quarter of a millennium after wow. the Constitution. Wow. We're still doing the same thing, yeah. you know. So, uh, yeah. This is the thing for those of us who have been white middle class We've had the privilege to kind of overlook this stuff. And so we've, yes. we have we have assumed that these things were working and that they were, you know, uh, and, and now we are being forced because I, I, I really I agree with you in terms of being I hadn't used the word radicalized for myself, but I, I like that. I mean, if, you know, watching George Floyd, I didn't watch the video, but seeing that. And, you know, I'm thinking of all the people of color who are saying, where the fuck you been? This is, you know, this is only the most recent and it's not even the most recent now. I mean, it's, you know, this is just one in a long litany of black men who have been choked out or shot in front of our eyes. And we, you know, I, I'll say me, I could choose to look the other way, you know, focus on my little world and move on. Yeah. I, you know, you can sum it up in a nutshell, which is, and in a way it is heartening and in a way, it's depressing. But, uh, you know, there have been somewhere between 16 and 23 million Americans in the street. Most of them have been white. And what's both depressing and heartening is, <laughs> hey, white people, they will kill you, too. That's right. And all of a sudden. That's right. You know, That's people right. Are like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which is, you know, that's crushing. Yeah, I mean, for me, the thing was Michael Brown, um, you know, and, I, and I, again, I wrote a song about it. I'm asking you to have some compassion for young dead Michael Brown and for his family. And for his city And for the man Who shot him down But I also, I've had this insight Like I feel like social media is a vile cesspool But then again, so is all of human discourse And I think people get to hear themselves talk Uh, To give you an example uh, You know, after Michael Brown and uh, the Charleston massacres, I began to really see this for what it was, which is that we, you know, more or less, we live in a mild corporate apartheid state. Mm -hmm. And um, 
We, in, at the time, I was living in Milwaukee when this happened, but a, a young man named Dontre Hamilton was, um, you know, a schizophrenic young man, black dude, uh, napping on a park bench, lady at Starbucks calls the cops, and the cops did the right thing. They showed up, talked to him, went to her and said, you know, it's not illegal to take a nap on a park bench, so thank you, we're going to go fight crime. But his call, that call stayed on the um dispatch blotter and so a second cop arrived and did the wrong thing and he frisked um he frisked the uh, uh Dontre Hamilton and Hamil- Hamilton freaked out grabbed his nightstick and hit him with it so he shot him 14 times the cop shot wow. Hamilton 14 times and killed him and you know sadly everyone saw him no one's disputing that he attacked the cop first and and so, you know, there wasn't even a, there, there weren't even charges brought. And then even worse, um, the cop was fired. His name was Christopher Manny. He was fired for initiating uh, a frisk against a person with mental illness, which, you know, I certainly do not have sympathy for him for overreacting and murdering a man, in, in my view. But what was he supposed to bring with him, a schizophrenia detector? that, you know, a handheld schizophrenia detector, like, I mean, I think that that lays bare something else, which is why were the first three people that, that, that this schizophrenic man encountered armed to the teeth police officers? Like where did the department of social work go? And we know the answer to that. It was deemed too expensive in the 1980s. So again, all this, you know, all this resonates back and forth. What's been most interesting to me is the commonality between people you wouldn't necessarily lump together. So for an example, there's a book by Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny. And basically when Trump came down the escalator, uh, Timothy Snyder is a scholar of how democracies slide into autocracy. Mm. Uh, specifically, he studied sort of mid 20th century. So the rise of the Stalinists in Russia and the rise of the uh, National Socialists in um, Germany, the Nazis. And um, he went on five alarm fire in 2015 when Trump came down the escalator. He was like, everybody, he's pushing the levers like this is how you do it. So there's him on the one hand, and then there was this, uh, I wish I could remember her name, but she was being interviewed by Samantha B. And she was an elderly black lady in Mississippi working for reproductive justice. And they asked her what she thought of Donald Trump. And she said, oh, Donald Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. And, you know, the interviewer said, wait, why? And she said, well, because every time he opens his mouth, 600 nice suburban white Republican housewives think to themselves, wait a minute, maybe everything is not okay. So I don't know. I think to bring all of that into a simple nutshell, I am incredibly hopeful and incredibly worried at the same time. Like, I feel like everyone's waking up. And now the question is, is it just in time or is it just too late? <laughs> yeah, you played Avogadro's in 2016 and uh, and you and I were chatting before the, the show. And of course, you know, that was in that was summertime in 2016, where yep. we really thought Hillary kind of had it under control. And you made a really interesting observation. I don't remember specifically. Maybe you will. This will bring a bell for you. 
But you said something about that we had had, and I don't think we were thinking about this in the context of tyranny, but you were talking about the fact that we had had these kind of insane people before, but they oh, had operated not. in a context where the rest of the political system wasn't insane. Right. Thinking about the thinking about the know nothings in the 19th century and all these, or uh, George Wallace in the 1968 uh, election, that kind of thing. In in that context, if I if I have your kind of take correct, if if we if we look at kind of uh, 2016, where one of the problems was the left was divided pretty woefully and kind of uh, tepid about Hillary, and there were all these kinds of things. If you if we flash, if you can compare and contrast between 2016 and 2020, what are your thoughts in terms of the differences there, both on the left and the right? Right. So, yeah, I remember what I yeah the essential thing in 2016 you had both a party fracturing and a demagogue, right? Right. And so that's sort of the perfect storm. And here we go. I will say. On the right in 2020, they know they can't win. Mm. And so they're literally just circling the wagons, retreating, trying to mm. stuff the courts, you know, and they've they've laid their hand on the table. They already said, if Hillary wins, we're not going to confirm any Supreme Court nominee right. if we still hold the Senate. So they're willing to have eight people on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, honest to God, if, if, uh, if Clarence Thomas... If Hillary Clinton had won and Clarence Thomas had passed away, they would have said, well, you know, (laughs) then we're going to have seven, you know, uh, and on and on. The thing about, I'll just give you my Pollyanna-ish wish. I hope that Biden sweeps into power with the Democrats. And I am perfectly fine with the Democrats adding statehood for DC, you know, hell, if Puerto Rican citizens wanted Puerto Rico, split California into two states, all of that is fine. But the truth is that the Democratic Party is spectacularly co-opted by corporate interests as well. I feel like I'm in the position that um, intellectually that Pope John Paul arrived at, like he spent his whole papacy basically saying correctly, that the Soviet Union was a, was an abysmal scourge on, on human well-being. And he's right. And then when the Iron Curtain came down, he just cleared his throat and said, okay, well, that's done. Now capitalism. You know, <laughs> Capitalism is the second biggest scourge on yeah. uh, human well-being. And I'm kind of in that position with both our political parties. Like, I, I feel like the Republican Party has had its day and it is breaking in half. And I'm that's great. I, I do. It's awful that so many people are going to have to be separated from their families at the border. Right. So many, you know, so many hundred thousand people had to perish because of the dysfunction of that party. You know, I mean, that's immensely tragic, but there have been worse tragedies when when parties fall apart. I, I hope the Democratic Party fractures into essentially, I think the healthiest thing that we could see at the end of this turmoil would be a sort of centrist corporate center-right party, which is Biden and frankly Harris, and then a green leftist labor environmentalist party, which is essentially AOC and Bernie and, and, and et cetera. And then, and this would be the real hope, and I think it's possible, 
that's a, the sort of conspiratorial, religious, fundamentalist, white supremacist streak that's been a part of our country forever gets orphaned. Mm. Like that mm. quarter of the people mm. just wind up in their own sort of vile corner so that we can finally have a dialogue essentially between labor and um, and the corporate interest. The corporate, yeah. A dialogue that is um, at least somewhat uninfected. Uh, you know, and, but for this to happen, this could have happened this election cycle, this past one, because that would have required uh, Paul Ryan to have suddenly been possessed by uh, um, some sort of uh, space alien that actually had an intellect and some courage. Like he... You know, he could have said Paul Ryan was the guy with his yeah. cute little dimple on his chin who could have just said, all right, screw this. I'm I'm going to be a Republican. I'll be over here. I don't know what the hell Donald Trump is, but right. it's not a Republican. So everyone, please come join me. And whatever the hell that is, if you think that's great, go join him. And he could have made a clean break out of the Republican Party. And honestly, I feel like Biden would have been on his side. You know, Amy Klobuchar would have been on his side. I welcome that. That's fine. Uh, but he had neither the courage nor the intellect to do that. Yeah. Somebody on Facebook referred to Biden as a socialist I was I was talking to. And, uh, and I said... <laughs> I said, that's the well, that's the dumbest thing I've read on the Internet. But I said, you know, the thing that that and I always said this about Obama, too, who I really liked and still like. But I always thought Obama and Biden would have been perfectly happy in an Eisenhower administration. Yeah. Of course, o Obama would have had to have whiter skin. But politically, he was always much more conservative than than either the right or the left wanted to believe in 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 his term. You know, and I mean, I, I will say the one thing and I'm kind of curious your thought on this is that very much the way you have even even the people you've raised here um i mean bernie's a little bit long in the tooth but aoc is is a, an amazing voice for the left it feels to me that elizabeth warren has been pushing people to the left and um that there are other voices uh uh castro from texas uh yeah he's great um, you know some really good people that we have that are not i mean i was saddened that they were not did not get as much traction during the primary uh than they did but i was also I felt some good there that we had these voices up there, people of color, um, people with different, a, a completely different vision, you know, and really yes. pushing. And I, I feel like that Biden actually has been pulled to the left a little bit. I mean, he's he's able to, you know, he's able to appeal to the Florida retirees because he's an old white guy. You know, yeah. it does seem to me that there's some hope there for that. Exactly what you're what you're talking about. I agree. Yeah. Um, the kids are fantastic. Yeah. You know, uh, the kids are all right. The kids are mostly who's in the streets. You right. know, they are taking the wheel. I mean, uh, our, our, our the Congress is a, is a gerontocracy by now. You know, the, the but the, the dispiriting part of that, you know, the Congress being a gerontocracy is awful, but there are some bright lights. I mean, my God, the wave of women and the wave of young women and the wave of young people that are running for Congress is beautiful to see. I, I am a little disturbed as well because as vile as this particular government of ours is, the power of the government vis-a-vis -vis people has declined. Mm. Uh, to give you just like, there are weird ways to get a glimpse of that. Kickstarter's funding of arts projects dwarfs the National Endowment for the Arts. Like by, I think, wow. at least one, maybe two orders of magnitude. 
Like it is stunning how much people now can do for themselves. I mean, what you and I are doing, right? Mm, like you yeah. used to need immense resources to do what you and I are right. doing right now. Right. You have to buy a radio station. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So, um, but unfortunately, the brocracy that is sort of running Silicon Valley, I am pretty turned off by them too. Like, you know, th there's a, there's a Bay area poet who said what I'm trying to say much quicker. He had a little poem that said, Ayn Rand is harder to kill than Rasputin compared to her. Nixon was a crib death, a quitter. <laughs> and that's it. Like every egg headed, messianic rich white dude in San Jose who's got like you know a 9,000 square foot glass apartment because what because his roommate was good at you know like right. marketing the app he built and then he sold while shares were high and like that guy has in some ways that guy has more say over my damn life than Chuck Grassley so yeah I don't know we'll see uh <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the 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 rise of the conservative right in terms of their anti-government stance. Um, you know, I mean that's been around for a long time. When I was teaching the the U.S. survey, we would often talk about it with the rise of the of the new right in the 1960s with Goldwater and you know, and and that. But it's amazing how many of those ideas have just percolated all the way through the political system. Yeah. So even people who want to advocate for some kind of government spending have to do so apologetically. They have to right. do so. They have to figure out how to pay for it. Whereas, as we've seen from the last four years, and not the first time, um, you know, when the right wants to do something, they actually don't give a shit about paying for it, and they don't make even an apology for it. They just do it. You know, they, they just, just do what do they it. want to do. And yet on the left, we still have. We already have people who are saying when Biden, if Biden gets elected, that we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to tighten our belts and, you know, address uh, fiscal responsibility. Twitter, as we all know, is um, the worst thing in the world. But every once in a while, I saw a tweet the other day that said something like, you know, universal health care is so hard to do that only 28 of the 29 developed nations have done it. I tend to always think allegorically, I, I feel like the United States at this point is itself uh, just basically a giant dysfunctional marriage. Mm. Like we can just, we, we fight over everything. We throw crap everywhere. You know, like we, we, wa we want to upgrade the house, but we're, we can't agree like, hey, let's get a better furnace. Like, nah, we don't, you know, and so nothing gets done. And we wind up spending so much more than we would need to. Yes. The, the primary example would be the $10 billion New York City Police Department budget. $10 billion. I don't know, maybe just spend $3 billion educating people and giving them, you know, uh, right. parental leave and uh, maternity leave and good health care and good education and see if then you need to spend the other seven right. billion on policing, you know, including paying for all the people that you shot because we didn't have the common sense to just give them a good education and a sense of belonging. Right. 
Or, yeah. or as, you, as you were saying in the, in the Milwaukee case, sending out a, so, uh, uh, a healthcare worker, a social social worker, and, and, and as you said, those were cut because we deemed those too expensive. Meanwhile, we are giving even small town police departments tanks. Right. And military, you know, I mean, military style weaponry. And you're like, okay, it, one of these things is not true. You know, totally. either, either, you know, either we can afford that or we can afford this. You know, Right. And I mean, in some ways, what there's a weird little silver lining to the fact that we're giving tanks to the Poughkeepsie Police Department or Poughkeepsie is a bad example to the, you know, Mayberry Police Department. The silver lining is the reason that we're giving them the, all that stuff is we know we're not fighting land wars anymore. Yeah. And, and there's no, the reason that there's no reason to fight a land war is, you know, one of the biggest drivers of wealth in the United States right now is that bureaucracy that I am so uh, uh, suspicious of, but it is driving, uh, it's driving wealth. And here's a question. Let's say that I am China and I would like that resource. What are you going to do? put tanks and troops in Southern California, overthrow the United States army. And then what, like control the geniuses, like you can't do it anymore by land war. So land war has become obsolete and therefore Mayberry has tanks, you know, but having said that, like it it remains an enormous problem that Mayberry has tanks. Here's a window into that. Uh, The Gibson Guitar Company, Department of Natural Resources, determined that some of their Brazilian rosewood was possibly not adequately accounted for in the paperwork because it's an endangered species. And so they're going back and forth with the Gibson Guitar Company and the Department of Natural Resources. And then they decided to seize the wood and they sent a fucking SWAT team. And the, the CEO of Gibson, rightly so, said, this is ridiculous. Like yeah. what you want to drive people towards the government interferes too much. Just send a dude with a clipboard for the <laughs> love of God. You know, why, why do you need guns? We built guitars, you dipshits. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus wants to take your guns away Jesus wants to take your guns away I was talking to him just the other day And Jesus wants to take your guns away He looks so tired Segway here is about political music because yeah. So I just talked to Mark Arelli. Uh-huh. Uh, we were talking about that. Um, I, you know, spent uh, several days with uh, Willie Porter last summer in Ireland. And uh, so we've talked a little bit about the role of musicians and how they deal with their fan base. And it feels like you are uh, Willie, it seems like who I know politically is very much in tune with with where you and I are. Um, and his live shows are wonderfully witty and biting sarcasm about the political process. But in his social media setting, he tends to be a little bit more not wanting to get in into these kind of shit storm kind of fights. You know, yeah. Marcarelli is a little bit like that, too. You know, he, he does it through his newsletter. But in his live show, he keeps his open politics kind of out of it. 
you of all the people I can think of outside of somebody like Billy Bragg or maybe Annie DeFranco, I mean, you know, Annie better and you maybe maybe, you know, Billy, too. Uh, you know, um, you are one of the more kind of upfront in your face. This is what I believe. It's in my music. I'm going to tell you to your face. This is what I believe. Um, and yet you have obviously cultivated a fan base and I'm kind of curious, have you gotten a lot of the, you know, shut up and sing kind of thing? Yeah, I have. I've gotten some of that. And, you know, my general response is no, just no, thanks. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm very willing to lose fans. And in some ways, that's easy when you have a, a lot, you know, I mean, there are several thousand people who seem to know and dig what I do. And when, I, for example, when I wrote Take Down Your Flag, I lost a few hundred people, you know, they were, and, and in some ways that's, I mean, that's just sad, you know, like I think, yeah. how did you listen to me for five, 10, 15 years and not figure out that I, I'm really not a Confederate flag waving kind of a guy, but I also think you just have to be yourself. It's interesting to me to watch Willie Porter You know, I agree with you that he's not as overt as I am, but it's interesting. Like he's deeply humanistic and he has spoken up more and more lately. And I get a sense that his fan base is a bit more conservative than mine and he knows it. And he's trying to sort of, we're all trying to do this. You actually want to bring people with you. As Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, the best thing you can do is make your case in a way that will bring people with you. Right. Uh, make your case respectfully. You know, um, Focal would be another example. Jeffrey Focal, you know, he's cowboy hat wearing, belt buckle, you know, yeah. sporting, boot wearing kind of a guy. And so quite a few of his fans were a little loath to discover where his politics lay. And I, in some ways, he's he's better at this than almost anybody. Just the other day, he said, you know, I apologize for the crack I made about there being no good Republican songwriters. I'm sure there must be. (laughs) I've never met one, but I'm sure there must be, (laughs) you know, like, uh, I tend to be way more earnest. Um, God, but it has, you know, the other thing is that, of course, the political is always personal. So that is generally my window into it. I tend to be a very earnest middle child kind of a guy. But if you look, if, if I'm going to be honest, the reason I wrote Take Down Your Flag was because I could not fucking stand it that Susie Jackson got shot, that, that, that Dylan Roof shot to death Susie yeah. Jackson. She was 87. I can't handle it today. Yeah. Like an 87-year-old woman with grandchildren and probably great-grandchildren, they've earned it. Like, yeah. you, I don't even care if you're an asshole by the time you're 87 yeah. years yeah. old. Yeah. You deserve to have your people around you and your kids should try to take away your driver's license and you should frustrate the hell out of them and spoil the grandkids. And then you, because you're going to get sick and you're going to die. And that's right. hard enough, you know. Right. And so, like, I wrote that song out of just absolute emotional desperation. Every flag over Charleston is a half-staff today, except one. 
except one Every flag over Charleston Is it half-staffed today Except one You know which one Take down your flag To half-staff Take down your flag To half-staff Take down your flag To half-staff Nine of our brothers and sisters are dead Let us bow down our heads to their names Tuanza, Sharonda, Clemente, Cynthia, Ethel, Myra, Susie, Daniel, the pain mm-hmm. Take down your flag to have stealth Take down your flag to have stealth. Take down your flag to have gonna take all of the love in all of our hearts but it will also take something more it's gonna take all of the love in all of our hearts but it will also take something more oh, take down your flag to have stealth Take down your flag to have stealth. Take down your flag to have stealth. And then take it down for good. So I was trying to engage my audience over the death of Dontre Hamilton in Milwaukee. And I, it came to my attention that there was a police department, uh, Richmond, California, where the police chief, Chris Magnus, had instituted new policies. And they had gone seven years in an urban, diverse, impoverished city without killing a single citizen. Seven years. And, um, you know, and so I posted a few links to the guy and I said, listen, now let's consider our city, Milwaukee. Let's back way up. Let's start with the premise that it would be better if we, if that young man had gone home alive or even been arrested alive. And the very first comment <laughs> someone said was, that officer needed to go home safe to his family and I don't care how many bullies it took to accomplish that. Now, I'm pretty sure he meant to say bullets, but he said bullies. In the end, all you can do is make your art. And if somebody's response, yeah. like I had a response, I posted a song from Michael Brown and somebody's immediate response was, 
why don't you have any compassion for the cops? Mm. And I was able to say to them, uh, they're in the fifth line of the song. Like they're right at the beginning of the song. I mentioned them directly. And my hope then is that if your art is true and someone has a reaction like that, that hopefully, even if they are turned off of your music, they might have a chance to go back and look at their reaction Mm. and maybe change themselves a little bit. Similarly, um, another time I, you know, posted another video song for Michael Brown and somebody said he was a thug and a predator and would have stolen your guitar and sold it for crack. You know, and again, I tried to engage with the, the guy. I couldn't, but in the end, like, I don't know, maybe he'll ask himself, gee, I like music. How come all the guys I like all seem to think the same thing? You know, they all seem to be in favor of, I don't know, compassion. Maybe I should look that up. Did you, I'm sure you saw when Chris Stapleton got in trouble for saying black lives matter, you know, and, and so uh, somebody posted on Twitter, well, you're out of my playlist now. I'm just going to listen to Sturgill Simpson and Tyler Childers. Uh, and uh, and Sturgill Simpson reposted and said, man, are you going to be disappointed? Because <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.